0: The first section, we're going to call the reason why, and that refers to why Jesus came. Listen here to God's word. And there arose a dispute among them, that is among the disciples, as to which one of them was to be regarded as greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The disciples are arguing among themselves about which one of them is the greatest. While Jesus is looking to serve. The disciples, he says, intimates here, are behaving like Gentile pagans. They have a mindset problem. Jesus says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Even though they have this mindset problem, Jesus sees them differently. He's not done with them yet. In his kingdom, they will rule. Jesus goes on. Simon, Simon, speaking to Peter. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again... Strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Well, Jesus has the realistic vision here. This really tells just what Jesus says is going to happen. They'll have God-allowed sifting by the forces of the devil, uh, from which Jesus will redeem them and build up their faith and reshape them, grant them a new vision, and then send them out on a mission. Just like he tells Peter here, go back and speak to your brothers when this is done. Now, Peter does not acknowledge this situation. He says, oh, no, this won't happen with me, maybe them, but not with me. But Jesus says he'll see (laughs) that this is true within a matter of just a few hours. Before the morning arrives. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out without money belt and bags and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. And Jesus said to them, But now, whosoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written, Must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. He reminds them of his provision for them. They've never lacked anything, but he says, The means of provision is going to change. They've been babes, they're going to grow to maturity. You know, when you're a baby, everything's provided for you. You don't have to worry about a thing. Even though you cry all the time, it's provided for you. But there comes a time when you have to become responsible. And that's what he says is going to happen to them. And he says, you won't have constant miracles uh, filling your stuff. You'll have to be responsible for this yourself. He refers to their exercise of faith. But they're still thinking in terms of human strength. They say, look, look, we got two swords. And Jesus says, oh, no, that's enough. And this exemplifies why... He had to come. Well, the scene is going to shift, and they are going to go into battle. So here's the first part of that. And Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter temptation. So Jesus follows his usual pattern out of the city of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Brook, and up into the the Mount of Olives at the base, or into the Gethsemane uh, Garden at the base of the Mount of Olives. What's interesting here is what Jesus tells the disciples to pray for. He says, you should pray that you would not enter into temptation. We might want to consider that in our prayers. Lord, lead me not into temptation. The account goes on and Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray saying father if you are willing remove this cup from me yet not my will but yours be done this is in fact the basic battle of the cross the crossroads where we meet our human will compared to God's will Uh, Jesus truly was human he had the same flesh we do though without sins corruption And like Adam in the garden before the fall, Jesus Jesus wrestled with his will, what he saw was good and attractive, and what the Father saw is that. And he had to battle that. And this is the battle crossroad of every human experience. Fallen as we are, it's even worse. Jesus could see short-term what lay ahead. Pain, agony, all all, all the things that we have crucified associate the crucifixion with, but he also knew the promise of God long-term. And so he had to decide which road to take. His prayer was, not my will, but yours be done. It goes on. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, appeared to Jesus, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. As he asked for God's will to be done, the Father sent him help, an angel. The angel strengthened him. God promises the same for us. As we purpose to do his will, we ask him for help, and he sends help to us. That's encouraging. I've not seen an angel, but I've certainly received help from angels, I do believe. I've received encouragement in my soul, wrestling with the things of life. It goes on. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up. And pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke records that Jesus came back to the disciples just once. He actually did that three times. Uh, and so the disciples are continually going to sleep. You know, the flesh is willing, but the spirit or the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They keep falling asleep. Have you ever fallen asleep trying to pray? Hello. Yes, that's good. That's better than falling asleep watching something on television and trying to pray. Just said that's not all bad, but they had forgotten apparently this forgotten prayer, not to enter into temptation. And Jesus reminds them again, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And of course, that's the last petition of the Lord's prayer that He taught them all along. So the forgotten prayer on many of our parts as we enter into battle, is, Lord, lead us not into temptation. And so now the battle is going to take place. They're going to be engaged. Here's how that happens. While he was still speaking, right there in the Garden of Gethsemane, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? All of a sudden, in the middle of the night, the enemy arrives. That's one tactic of the enemy. Come and attack when folk are tired and out of it. Not up to their full resources. Tactic two is to deceive. To cloak what's happening with signals of goodwill kiss, and then stab. That's a tactic of the enemy. Make it all look attractive, but then there's poison in what we think is so attractive. When those who were around Jesus saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Remember those swords? They said we got them, and Jesus said, enough. You don't don't understand it. He did not mean for them to be used in situations like this. Wrong tactics. We know that Peter is the one who wielded the sword. The name of the servant whose ear he cut off was Malchus. But Jesus healed all that. Matthew will record Jesus telling them, put the sword into its place where it belongs, not here. This sort of action is out of place. It continues. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So he questions their tactics. He tells the authorities that they have employed against him tactics that one would use against a robber. And Jesus is not a robber. And the tactics they use, deception and darkness, is a good indicator that of whom they really serve. The prince of darkness. They arrested Jesus. He was captured. Listen here as the word of God continues describing that night. Having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began insist to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter had not prayed not to enter into temptation. He gets tempted thrice, three times, and fails with increasing vehemence. Ah, but the mercy of God. Ah, but the mercy of God because Jesus turns and looks at him. That's called confrontation. That's called conviction of sin. It's the repentance goodness of God, the kindness of God that leads us to that. And Peter knew what had happened. He remembered the words of Jesus instantly. What he said he'd never do, he's done. Oh, the depth of his fall. And he leaves weeping bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him and they blindfolded him and were asking him saying prophesy who is the one who hit you and they were saying many other things against him blasphemy so Jesus is assaulted physically emotionally and spiritually that is in body soul and spirit each blow lands with force it's painful Humiliating and debilitating. He's surrounded by the dogs and lions (coughs) mentioned in Psalm 22. It goes on. When it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony, for we have heard ourselves from his own mouth? The Jewish authorities say they want answers to their questions. The basic question is this, Jesus, are you the Christ? He says that they won't believe even if he tells them. But he points to Psalm 110. That's what he quotes from here to them. And if you remember, earlier in the week, in Passion Week, he'd also ask them a question from Psalm 110. Who is the Messiah? He's the son of David. Well, if he's David's son, how is it that David calls him Lord? And they were silenced. <coughs> so Jesus, all along, <coughs> sees Psalm 110 as a prophecy of him. Finally, they ask him, are you then the Son of God? He says, Yes, I am. There it is. It's out. He is the Son of God. (coughs) So now he goes on trial. Here's how it's described. Then the whole body of him got up and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. So they take Jesus before Pilate and accuse him of sedition, of tax evasion, and treason. When Pilate asks Jesus if he is a king, he says, If you can hear it, yes, I am. Then Pilate representing the highest human court available on the earth at that point in time, declares, I find no guilt in this man. He exonerates Jesus. That's exoneration number one. It goes on this way. When Pilate heard it, that is that Jesus was from Galilee, when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate knows that they want to kill Jesus. He knows that he's innocent. What's he going to do? He tries to weasel his way out. He says, well, I'll get him sent over to Herod, and Herod can try him, and Herod can condemn him, and that'll be a load off my mind. I don't have to do that. And so he sends... Jesus to Herod. Here's what happens. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes we standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Herod is delighted to see Jesus finally. He wants to see him perform some miracles. Perhaps, unfortunately for Herod, Herod himself had closed the mouth of God in terms of speaking to him when he had John the Baptist's head removed at the palace. Jesus says nothing. And the silence of Jesus speaks eternally concerning Herod. He goes back to Pilate. Pilate summoned the chief priests, and the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him, therefore I will punish him and release him. Now who was obliged to release for them at the feast one prisoner? So Pilate reviews the charges that they bring against Jesus. Says that Herod has uh, not found anything uh, that Jesus is guilty of. He says, I can find no guilt in this man, exoneration number two. So I'll I'll tell you what, I found no guilt in him, but I'm going to punish him and let him go. Now that sounds sort of weird, but that's what they did back then. Just because you were here, we'll just give you a few rods and let it go like that. But he says, I am supposed to lose for you one prisoner since it's Passover time, so maybe I'll release this man. And that evokes an immediate reaction. Listen to this. But they, that is, the chief priests, the authorities, and the crowds, but they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. Now Barabbas was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, crucify, crucify him. Hard to believe. The Jewish authorities and the crowd they've rounded up pressed for a wicked man named Barabbas to be released. Jesus, though, they wanted him crucified. Implacable hatred toward him. And they started a chant to that effect. Crucify, crucify, crucify. What happens? So Pilate said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. For the third time, the highest human court available declares, I have found in him no guilt. He again intends to punish Jesus and then release him. But the chant to crucify Christ grows louder and louder and louder. Finally, deliverance happens, but it's not deliverance to freedom, but he delivers Jesus over to the Jewish authorities for crucifixion. We want to move into a section we've labeled walking and talking. We meet a fascinating cast of characters here who'll be walking, some of them, some will be walking and talking. learn a lot. Here's the first one. When they led Jesus away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Here we can see the election of God. Simon is walking in from the country, minding his own business. Next thing you know, somehow he's plucked out of the crowd And he's made to carry Jesus' cross. It's amazing that he's even named here, but he's named in numbers of the Gospels. Uh, In Mark, it even tells the names of his sons, Alexander and Rufus. He becomes a prototype, if you would, of a Christian. He takes up the cross and carries it behind Jesus. According to Luke, then, he's fulfilling Jesus' call to take up your cross And follow me aren't we glad when God picks us nobodies out of the crowd and calls us to take up our cross and follow Jesus and following Jesus was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him but Jesus turning to them said daughters of Jerusalem stop weeping for me but weep for yourselves and for your children For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? All along that winding way, the Via Dolorosa it's called now, through old Jerusalem, crowds mourn and lament this one who's being led out to be crucified and killed by the Romans. Jesus' counsel to them is, weep for yourselves, not for me. He's told before about the destruction that looms over Jerusalem. He he wept over Jerusalem himself on the day of his triumphal entry. And then he he did the whole, uh, uh, all of that discourse. He told about the destruction of Jerusalem that loomed all because they did not recognize the time of their visitation from God. That is, the time when the Messiah walked in their midst. This destruction will happen in just 40 years, one generation. It will be terrible. Two others, also who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. Suddenly, we realize there were two other guys who were going to be crucified along with Jesus. They were criminals under the sentence of death. That's all we know now. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. So the walk ends. They're at Golgotha. And Luke doesn't go into a large description about it, it just says they crucified him. We know that Jesus was in the middle because here in Luke's gospel and other gospels as well, they say that there was one on the right and another one on the left who were crucified with him. No more walking, but there will be talking. But Jesus was saying from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And They cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. While the soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross gamble for his clothes, Jesus holds them up to the Father, prays that God would forgive them. He talks to God on the cross from the cross on behalf of those who put him there. And we know that would include us. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, Coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus hangs naked on the cross. People look at him, people stare at him, people mock him, they taunt him. If he is the Messiah, if he's the king of the Jews, Prove it by coming down off the cross. There's more talking. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. We hear the conversation between Jesus and the two criminals. They know that above his head is the sign that says Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. He's been hanging there from 9, he'll hang there till 3 a.m. He's just that. But somewhere along the line, while they had both begun, according to Matthew, to hurl abuse at him, somewhere along the line, one of those thieves experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Uh, Just as that happened to Simon of Cyrene, God moved in his life. He asked Jesus, by name, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It wasn't too little, and it wasn't too late. Jesus said, truly, this day, You'll be with me in paradise. The Holy Spirit was already opening the repentant thief's eyes to the fountain of life flowing from Jesus' veins. So now it happens. We head into sort of our final segment here. Uh, Here's what it says. It was now about the sixth hour, that is noontime, And darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. For three hours, the sun did not shine. There was not an eclipse. There wasn't any natural phenomenon to cause this. It was God judging the sin Jesus carried on his person. The depths of hell racked Jesus' system for those three hours. The wrath of God was poured out in full measure upon Jesus from Nazareth. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. A huge veil, 30 feet high, wide, very, very heavy, was torn, ripped from top to bottom as Jesus hung on the cross since he died. The Holy of Holies was exposed. Christ entered in, as it were, offered himself to God, and the ultimate, final sacrifice was offered. Here's what it says. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, having said this, He breathed his last. With his dying breath, Jesus committed himself to the Father. He didn't come off the cross. His spirit went to the Father. Reconciliation was established. It happened there and then in history. There were reactions. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. The centurion began praising God he would only be the first in a long line of Gentiles to do so because of what Jesus had done. It was opened up. The multitudes went back home, still mourning, beating their breasts, not realizing what had taken place. And the followers of Jesus were stunned. They did not know quite what to do the impossible had happened. Now, the impossible was for us to be reconciled to God, but for them, the impossible was that Jesus had died. And so, you can't stand still. You must take action. Hear the actions that took place that Luke records. And a man named Joseph who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, parentheses, he had not consented to their plan and action, in parentheses, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. We label this action courageous. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He was a member of the ruling council, He had not voted to condemn Jesus. He was from Arimathea, and he went and asked Pilate for the body of this dead criminal. This was not an ordinary act or request. Mark 15.43 tells us that Joseph had to gather his courage and go in and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. It takes courage to identify with Jesus in hostile circumstances. And he, Joseph, took it, the body of Jesus, down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. That's called a responsible act. Joseph did the responsible thing. He made sure the body of Jesus was properly cared for, properly wrapped, and then had it placed in a tomb, freshly cut of solid stone, in which no body, no corpse, had ever yet been lain, and he put Jesus' body there. It was, in fact, the responsible thing to do. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with Jesus out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb, and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Faithful is what we would call those actions. They were followers of Jesus. They followed his body to the tomb, they saw where he was placed, and then went back home to make preparations that would not be able to be carried out until the Sabbath was over. They were determined to be faithful. Even though Jesus had died, their hopes were crushed. But they would wait for that first day of the week and then return and do what they could for Jesus' dead body. Well, that ends the reading. They were reading tonight. We know what those women will find when they go to that tomb On the first day of the week, we are excited for them. I've been exuberant in my spirit all day long, working through this, at what God had done. We know the story. We know the reality of what comes about through that. We're excited for them, even while they seek consolation for their grief. On that morning, that day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, they would receive much, much more consolation their lives would be changed forevermore so we're going to close this service by singing a hymn that reflects what God has done the power of the cross
1: is the